Leite in the attack zone. Off the boards for Ingram. Blocked once, twice. Towed out to Trelecki with 12 seconds left. Tries to turn it inside. Stan holding it along the near board. Still with it on the left side. A shot. Save Van Aaron with five seconds left. He's going to hold on to the ball. Baltimore will go into the playoffs. And despite a great effort tonight by the Pittsburgh Spirit, they will lose the way they have lost a lot of games this year. Hard luck, great goaltending, could not get the big goal to win the game in support of Dave Bursich, but they did not quit at all tonight. They came back several times, and it goes right down to the final five seconds of play before you can say that the Spirit are actually eliminated. Stay with us. John Sanders and I will be back to do some recapping and say some thank yous when we return. The season is over on Pittsburgh Spirit Soccer. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, everybody, how's it going? Let's get this uh, show on the road, shall we? And uh, I am uh, so happy that you have joined us uh, once again for another fun-filled and certainly exciting episode, of course, of Good Seats Still Available. Yes, that is our curious little podcast journey that we do weekly to uh, explore what used to be in professional sports. We are uh, in the midst of uh, the uh, quadrennial mania that is the FIFA World Cup, which starts later this week. Uh, we do have soccer on the brain. We often do, but perhaps uh, no more often than uh, we do uh, perhaps this week and the weeks to follow. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, the United States, uh, neither Italy or uh, the Netherlands for that matter, some other big powerhouses, uh, are participating this year, but it doesn't mean that the excitement is going to be any less. Matter of fact, I think it's going to be quite the tournament on, on a whole number of fronts. And um, uh, the reason uh, that we uh, mention it is not only because of the excitement, but because of this week's special guest. His name is JP Della Camera. And of course, uh, if you have followed uh, the sport of soccer in any way, shape, or form in this country over the last, gee, oh, I don't know, 30 years, uh, you know JP's voice as the signature. Uh, uh, dulcet tone voice of the sport of soccer in this country uh, has been a part of uh, a half dozen World Cups now, uh, major international tournaments, women's World Cups and uh, uh, European championship calls and major league soccer. And as we're going to get into our conversation today, a whole bunch of different things uh, in his uh, early days in the career that has uh, wended and winded through uh, many various ports of call, especially in that of hockey. Uh, he was the uh, the voice of the Atlanta Thrashers for a bunch of years. Remember them? Yes, now the uh, the Winnipeg Jets that just missed out uh, the second incarnation of such uh, to get into the uh, Stanley Cup this year. Uh, but uh, J.P. Delacamera was the voice of that team and all the excitement that was there. Uh, but J.P. also has a, a rich uh, history in, in a lot of different sports, but certainly soccer. Uh, and we get into it. A lot of sort of the uh, dusty nooks and crannies uh, that uh, got uh, JP on the road to being basically the uh, the dean of soccer broadcasters in this country. We go back to uh, 1978, if you can believe it, the Detroit Express of the old North American Soccer League, uh, the Pittsburgh Spirit and the MISL, the league, uh, as well as the team. Um, uh, JP was an instrumental part of. We get into WUSA women's soccer, the strongly hoped for and well-funded league that came at the, uh, off the heels of uh, the 1999 Women's World Cup, uh, that of the famous uh, Brandy Chastain uh, penalty kick overtime goal and and 
famous sports bra and the call, of course, by J.P. Della Camera uh, of that uh, of that match, that quintessential match. Another quintessential match that uh, J.P. called was in 1989, uh, proverbially known as the uh, shot heard around the world uh, with Paul Caligiuri and the U.S. national team qualifying uh, in Trinidad and Tobago in late 1989 for the 1990 World Cup in Italy. Uh, J.P. was at the uh, behind the mics with that uh, for that, along with Seamus Mallon. Uh, for for that instrumental uh, game that certainly, as you'll hear in this conversation, set the tone for uh, a, a renewal uh, and another a whole other level for the sport of soccer in this country. It's a, a very fun and interesting conversation with uh, probably the most uh, uh, well-known uh, and steady voices uh, in the sport of soccer and, of course, in hockey, too. Uh, that is J.P. Della Camera. He'll be calling a whole bunch of games uh, for Fox Sports uh, and the uh, FIFA World Cup coming up later this week. And uh, he is our special guest, and uh, we encourage you to stay for uh, a few uh, minutes, almost an hour or so, uh, for a very fun chat with uh, with JP in just a couple of seconds. Let's see. So a couple of promotional items. Let's uh, sweep these away, shall we, as quickly as possible. Let's get to the good stuff after that. Uh, audibletrial.com slash seats. If you are traveling uh, to the World Cup uh, or you're contemplating a uh, cross-country trip, uh, and uh, just need some stuff to keep you occupied during those long hours of travel. Well, what what better way to do that than, well, aside from listening to your favorite podcast, of course, uh, a uh, an audiobook or two or seven or perhaps one of under 180,000 titles to choose from from our friends at Audible. And if you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats, you will get a free audiobook download to give it a try for yourself. Uh, you also get a free month of the uh, of the service. And uh, of course, you get to see all the various titles and genres and and things that are out there for you to discover uh, in the world of audiobooks. Audible is uh, arguably the preeminent source of audiobooks. And at audibletrial.com slash goodseats, it's your way to sample it, get a free audiobook for you to listen to and enjoy. Uh, You can cancel at any time. Again, I stress that you can cancel at any time. So give it a shot. Uh, Get your downloaded book, audiobook, give it a listen. I think you'll enjoy it as much as I do. I love audiobooks. And Audible is, uh, I, I can't think of any other better entity uh, than to uh, uh, to access and to deliver and uh, for you to enjoy uh, the, uh, the the magic that are, that is, are, whatever, you know, audiobooks, of course, audibletrial.com slash goodseats and uh, give that a try. We appreciate you doing so. We also appreciate you giving a, uh, our friends at sportshistorycollectibles.com a try as well. And uh, for those who have listened to the show before, you will know that at sportshistorycollectibles.com is a treasure trove of all kinds of sports memorabilia, both uh, for teams and leagues that no longer exist, as well as teams and leagues that are in different incarnations. There's a whole raft of stuff. Uh, and there's new inventory there every week. We encourage you to go try it. And of course, when you're there at sportshistorycollectibles.com, please, 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 be by all means, make sure that you use the promo code GOODSEATS. The promo code GOODSEATS. And what are you, you going to get for that using that little code? you're going to get 15% off all of your purchases at sportshistorycollectibles.com. Use your promo code GOODSEATS and enjoy 15% off all of your purchases, courtesy of us or your friends here at Good Seats Still Available. Thanks so much for uh, giving them a try as well. All right, let us uh, waste uh, no more time. Let us get uh, into a very fun, a very interesting, and a, uh, a very uh, revelatory uh, conversation uh, with uh, the Dean of soccer broadcasters here in this United States. Uh, and uh, the preeminent voice that you will hear during the Fox Sports' 
uh, coverage of the FIFA World Cup. His name is JP Della Camera. It was an honor to have a conversation with him. And here it is. I'm very curious as to sort of how you even got involved in this wacky business of sports broadcasting and, and maybe perhaps a little bit of background as to what your, your childhood was like and what you were thinking about career-wise. And did you have a plan uh, at all when you mm. kind of stumbled into this? Or maybe maybe you did. Well, I grew up in the Boston area, and Boston uh, is a great sports city today. Uh, it was also a great sports city back in the day when I was growing up. So you had uh, Patriots were nowhere near you know what they are today, but you know Red Sox were obviously a very popular team then. But the most popular team back then, not the Celtics who were winning championships, but actually the Boston Bruins. So I grew up first as a hockey fan, you know, more than a soccer fan. We didn't really have much soccer going on there, but. You know, the, back in those days, the NASL was trying to get something going. You had another league going on at the same time. There were two competing leagues. And I remember going to, to Boston, uh, to Fenway Park, actually, to watch a team play. It was a, a team mostly made up of, of players from other countries. And the sport just kind of grew on me. You know, I, I, I wasn't a big baseball guy because I thought baseball doesn't have much pace to it this you know, so much time between pitches and then innings and so many breaks and you know, trips to the mound and all that, where soccer seemed to be more like hockey, not, not the speed of it, but in the sense that um, players are always moving, the ball is always moving, there was constant motion, and I think that's where I, I fell in love with it. Uh, you said the old Fenway Park. Was that sort of the, uh, uh, the early days of the, uh, the old NASL, like the uh, what, Boston – Boston Beacons, I'm guessing, right? Or, or that's that's you know um, that's the team that it was. It was the Boston Beacons, and uh, you know some things you can remember very well, and some things you can't. I'm going to throw out a name. The goalkeeper was Walt Tarnowski. Nice. That's the only name I can remember, though. Sorry, but that's the only name I can remember. Well, uh, but they did play games, some games at least in Fenway Park. That's where I went. Yeah, yeah, and we've we've actually had a couple of conversations about uh, about the old uh, United Soccer Association and the old uh, uh, NPSL, National Professional Soccer League. Obviously, the the two predecessors uh, to what ultimately became the NASL. As you sort of went to those games and obviously sort of immersed yourself in sort of Boston sports culture, I guess. Did you? When did you kind of have the inkling that this uh, thing might actually lead to a career? This interest in sports, and I mean, were you a broadcast um, guy? What was you? What was your sort of yeah. sensibilities? Yeah, I went to a college that's no longer there um, called Graham. It was Graham Junior College. It was a two-year school. I, I got my associate's degree in communications. We had our own television station. Uh, we had our own radio station. So I, I did a show there. It was called Sports Hot Seat. And it was like a half-hour conversation with various sports people. We, we ended up getting some you know, fairly good guests. You know, the, the teams were very cooperative in the Boston area. So we got some good guests on the show. And we also would go out and, and actually do remotes. So I, I did some, you know, remote hockey games at um, crazy hours, like at 10 o'clock at night when we could get the ice where, where Boston University was playing. And our team wasn't very good. So the games were, were challenging to do. So I did get some experience there. But when I first went to Graham, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to be um, on television. Um, I, I knew I wanted my career to have something to do with either sports or music because those were my two loves. But I, I think you know, by the time I, I made the decision to go to Graham, I would say uh, when I actually made that decision, then I knew that it was going to be sports. I, I think I, I 
got rid of the music bug by that point because I thought, you know, nobody wants to listen to, you know, somebody in their 70s or, you know, late 70s uh, on the radio. You know, and radio stations don't want to hire people that age, whereas in sports, you know, I could see there were a lot of um, old timers that were still calling games at that age. So I thought it's a longer career and I did like sports more than music. So I decided to go for it. But my first real experience was really minor league hockey. And that's what I thought I was going to be minor league hockey guy. And then hopefully an NHL broadcaster. That was always the dream growing up in Boston with Bobby Orr and Phil Esposito. It was never about soccer or any other sport. I was going to be a hockey guy. Well, it's clear that hockey obviously is part of your has been part of your career as well uh, throughout. But maybe how did you sort of get that sort of first gig and and uh, uh, perhaps that sort of uh, I don't know hefty dollop of courage uh, you know the, the, to be on the air and, and yeah. confidence to call the games and and not uh, listen to your voice and get all flustered and and all that kind of stuff, which can be pretty heady stuff when you're that young. You have an idea, but you not necessarily the right tape or the uh, or the experience yeah. so to speak, right? I always had confidence. Uh, it was all to me. I'm I'm like the young guy of today. You know, there's a lot of good young broadcasters out there that have a lot of confidence, but it's all about getting the opportunity. And back then, you know, we didn't have the opportunities that the young kids have today. You know, I tell college kids now, here, here's the good and the bad. You know, the good is that there are so, so many more jobs available to you right now, much more than I had growing up in, in my era. But the bad news is that there's a lot more competition now because more people want to be on the air, more people want to do sports. So I think you're going up against a more crowded field. So I think you have to be even better today than, than maybe before. You know, maybe uh, I could be wrong on that, but that's just my, my, my take on it. So I, I think that uh, when you look at those situations, who's going to give you a chance. And, and you had to start like low minor league hockey. You, know, you did a lot of traveling. Um, when I was, when I was first married, when my daughter was eight years old, we had lived in, in, I think it was eight years. We had lived in eight different places, not different cities, but different apartments or a house or wherever, you know, because that was the life of a minor league hockey broadcaster. And, you know, if I fast forward to when I made the transition, let's say from hockey, to soccer, it was after doing minor league hockey for 10 years and thousands and thousands, thousands of bus miles, I thought, you know, it's time to maybe, maybe do something else. And at that time, indoor soccer was becoming uh, a fairly popular thing. And I thought, well, indoor soccer is a lot like um, hockey on grass. And, and back in those days, you know, the hockey coaches, um, or indoor soccer coaches rather, would get conversations going with the hockey guys because they would design their power plays on a similar basis, you know, and, and line changes and things like that. So there were a lot of similarities there. And going back to, I want to say 1982, sometimes it's hard to remember exact dates, but in 82, there was a team in Pittsburgh called the Pittsburgh Spirit. They were owned by the DeBartolo family, who also owned the Penguins, uh, Civic Arena at that time it was called. I think they own the 49ers also at, at that time. And I thought there's a job open there. I could move from radio to television. I'll be flying instead of being on the bus. And I thought, you know, indoor soccer was a great sport. And that's probably where, even though I had done some other outdoor college games, not a lot, but I had done some other work, but I would say that's where 
the the soccer conversion probably got a big kickstart, no pun intended. All right. Well, before we get to the igloo, we're going to take you there live in a second. Uh, you did mention, uh, and I think I saw this in a uh, uh, the Soccer America article recently, uh, that wasn't your first uh, dalliance with uh, with broadcasting the sport of soccer, right? Had you nope. had a little bit of outdoor, yep. uh, even NASL experience, or how yep. did you kind of get your first taste on the air with that? Um, ironically, you know, back in those days, you um, there's no computers, right? So you're not emailing people. You're actually calling people. To, to check on work. Um, so I'm calling the Detroit Express. I can't remember you know, why I uh, called them other than they were a new team. And um, I, was looking for, I was looking for television work. And whoever I spoke to at the time, uh, now that I think of it, it was, it was Roger Faulkner, who still uh, has done a lot of things in the Detroit area with soccer, um, talked to him on the phone. And um, they said that they were not looking for a TV guy, but their first two games, they were going to have the games on radio and they needed somebody to do those first couple of games. And I literally talked my way into it. I had no real experience. Uh, I can't, can't remember why they would have hired me or taken a chance other than, you know, maybe they were up against it. Maybe it was late, but whatever happened, I did the first two games in Detroit express history. Anyway, Trevor Francis was on that team. I think um, Keith Furphy, I think, was on that team. There, there are a bunch of, bunch of names from, from that era. Uh, my first game was in Tulsa, and the second one was in Fort Lauderdale. Those were my first two. And I enjoyed it. Uh, enjoyed it immensely. And then after that, 1980, I did some outdoor soccer for the Pennsylvania Stoners, American Soccer League. They won a championship in 80. And I still think they were the first team had the name on the Jersey unless somebody else has a, has another one. Um, Alpo was um, a big sponsor and they were local. They were in either Allentown or Bethlehem as the main headquarters. So, and it was not big money at the time, but whatever it was, it was big for the American soccer league. So they had Alpo in the Jersey. And I remember people were making fun of it, you know, and there would be jokes about the teams going to the dogs and all that stuff, but it would help keep the team in, in business. And in some ways, you know, that team was a little bit ahead of the curve. Oh, no doubt. And having grown up in the uh, northern New Jersey area myself, certainly very familiar with uh, obviously the NASL and the Cosmos and 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 those and the teams playing in there, but also the Stoners as well. Um, I, I'm curious because you know, having uh, had a little taste of the what I guess then that was at its maximum, right? 24 teams in the North American Soccer League at that point, and uh, mm-hmm. and then the ASL, which was sort of this. You know, uh, newly rechristened professional league. Obviously, it had kicked around for many, many years earlier on, more, more yeah. mostly as an ethnic sort of regional kind of thing. But then, you know, as the NASL sort of got going, uh, the ASL sort of fancied itself almost as a uh, professional-like uh, circuit as well. Did you any any early recollections of sort of the um, uh, the differences or the uh, the zeitgeist of each of those leagues and and your perceptions of, albeit in in early form. Uh, what pro soccer was sort of like and going to be? Did you see there was a long-term future here or were you suspicious or just, just hungry for a job and not caring really about what the future was? Yeah, I think it was the latter. You know, when you, when you see something happening, you know, in front of you, I, I don't think, like even Major League Soccer, 1996 when they started, right, when they had a, the big press conference in New York City the year before, 
you know, it was a, um, a big gala that they had in the city. And I don't think anyone sitting there, no matter who it was, would have said, you know, when you get down to like 2018, you're going to have this many teams. You're going to have this many new stadiums. You're going to have state-of-the-art training facilities. You're going to pay $15 million to get a player. David Beckham's going to come here. Like, nobody would have guessed that, right? And I think that's where I was probably back in those days in the, in the 80s where I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, there's an NASL, there's a American soccer league, but, you know, this is what it is, right? The media coverage was not big. You know, the crowds, except for probably the Cosmos, you know, we're not huge in a lot of places, but uh, going back to your earlier point about like maybe what the differences were, American Soccer League had some very good players and very good coaches. I liken it to, to today, right, where you have um, MLS, you had, uh, had slash have NASL, I mean, they're in limbo right now, and USL, right? I, I covered the Cosmos in the new era of the NASL. That was a very good team. They won a couple of titles while I was calling their games. Um, they were a very competitive team under Giovanni Savarese. Uh, on its day, that team could compete with, with MLS teams. So I think that the difference in the, in the leagues back then is the difference in the leagues now. It's all about the money. Mm-hmm. So take away the money, you know, take away the, the big money players and you know, the rest of the lineup, you can make a comparison. Uh, back in those days, the American Soccer League never got as much credit for being as good of a league as they were. And in our modern time here, you know, the NASL never got the credit that they should have. That was that was a good league. And personally, uh, for the players' sake, I, I do hope it comes back. Yeah, I, I do too. And I actually I also, also want to spend some more time on some more episodes on uh, on the ASL, especially in the 70s and early 80s, because uh, – you know, indeed, you even had coaches like Eddie Fermani, who coached the New Jersey Americans after the Cosmos for a while. And yeah. they, I think Al Troutwig got his start calling the New York Apollo games uh, out of Long Island. He did. He did. Do you know who the first commissioner was? I mean, that I can remember, not the first commissioner of the league. But when I was involved, the commissioner of the league was Bob Cousy, the former Celtic great. Who is still with us, by the way. Now, I don't know what what state, what state he is. and were, Yeah, you know, I thought he was, but I, I wasn't sure. But, I mean, that was amazing, right? They went for... And they paid him at that time, from what I understand, a good amount of money because they thought, even though he did not have a soccer background, that, you know, his name would resonate back then. I mean, that was that was the thought process. Yeah, well, we'll have a few more. We, we did an episode on the uh, Cincinnati Comets uh, for a couple of years, which is probably before uh, the, the mid-70s and stuff. But, yeah, there, there's some very interesting stories there that uh, I think as uh, Major League Soccer continues to root itself and, and now with the USL, uh, and maybe even a USL Division Three, and, and perhaps whatever uh, becomes of the NASL, and, and the there certainly is that infrastructure, right? And we'll get into that in a little little in a little bit when you we get maybe to your your views about the sport, but yeah. you know, there's mm-hmm. just no doubt the infrastructure is getting much much deeper, and you know, names and heritage, and I think people are inter- it'd be very interesting to sort of see how that um, that heritage that history sort of gets uh, shall we say rediscovered, and and it's been rediscovered in pockets for sure. Yeah, I mean, we see teams that come in now to MLS go back to the old NASL names, you know, like the Sounders, like the Timbers. You know, they embrace that tradition. You know, others want to go their own way, like Atlanta just went with Atlanta United. They didn't want to go back to some of the names of, of their past in Atlanta soccer history. It's, you know, it's whatever the club decides to do. 
But I, I always found that fascinating. And that's why I liked it when, you know, when the Cosmos came back, because they are the iconic brand. They are the name. You know, there are probably people overseas right now that when they, when they hear the name New York Cosmos, that means probably more to them than any, any MLS team does. Even though, even though, you know, the, the Cosmos of, of the last few years in the NASL and now in Cosmos B are obviously nowhere near what an MLS, an MLS team is like, you know, but more people probably in, you name the country, more people would be more familiar with the New York Cosmos than the MLS defending champions, Toronto FC. Yeah, we even had uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, a guy named Waylon Moore on our show. He was uh, the guy who actually created the logo uh, back in the day. Really? Yeah, and it's, really? it's uh, the iconography. And, and, you know, to your point, right, the team has come back in, in various flavors and, and hopefully will again at a at a senior level again. And that logo just resonates, right? And it, it stands for something both past and maybe in the future. So It does. I, I grew up as a Cosmos fan. I never did Cosmos games until the reboot era, but I enjoyed um, watching uh, Jim Carvelis, late, the late Jim Carvelis and, and Seamus Mallon doing games. I mean, I, I enjoyed them. And then later I got a big kick out of working with Seamus on, on many soccer games. But I used to always watch the Cosmos when I was doing, even when I was doing minor league hockey, back then they were on what was called WOR, I think Channel 9 out of New York. Yep. And what, whatever we had back then, it was not direct TV or, or uh, Dish or any of that, but whatever we had on our cable system, we were able to get Cosmos games in Erie, Pennsylvania. So doing minor league hockey, still was watching Cosmos games and, and getting my fix of soccer that way. I think st- I think Carvelis was still, uh, even to this day, uh, you know, one of the sort of iconic soccer broadcasters ahead of his time, and you know, obviously a lot of other sports experience. But the the two yeah. of them, I mean, Seamus and, and Carvelis were just, I think, frankly, borderline legendary. Uh, maybe because I was a kid at the time, maybe. But you go back, a lot of yeah. the broadcasts, you know, they still hold up. You know, the the excitement. Uh, you know, I, yeah. I could could make the argument that a lot, a lot of MLS broadcasters could use a little. Uh, you know, a little uh, videotape from the old uh, Carvelis uh, Mallon days. Yeah, it'd be nice to give it a listen. You know, I enjoyed it then. I'm sure if I listen now, I would, I would enjoy it as well. But they, you know, WOR back then um, probably had production values back in those days. You know, you can't compare it to, to now, obviously, with the number of cameras and the HD and all that. But yeah, back then, they, for their era, that was a, a high-quality television show. So when they put that on, you know, that was like really like a network game for us to watch. All right. Well, so let's get into your Pittsburgh days, because uh, in many respects, uh, it seems to me that your hockey experience, uh, and you kind of alluded to it earlier, uh, it was almost sort of natural, uh, a natural uh, uh, fit or, or overlap, if you will, with this fledgling thing called the Major Indoor Soccer League, which wasn't even a real sport until 1978, 79. I mean, it had some indoor, you know, dalliances with the NASL years prior, but um, maybe you can give our audience a bit of a sense of sort of how you came to discover this um, uh, frenetic indoor version of the sport and uh, how that parlayed into or how you parlayed that uh, that growth into uh, a gig, which was relatively long lasting. And I think if I'm not mistaken, you, you correct me if I'm wrong, kind of put you and soccer kind of together almost inextricably uh and sealing that for your future no yeah no i would say that that's true i think that um living in erie we were two hours away from pittsburgh but back then um 
in the early days of, of the old MISL, you know, you had celebrity people involved, like Pete Rose was an owner of the, was it the Cincinnati Kids, I think was their name at that time? Correct, sir. Um, you had you had families like the DeBartolos that were, were getting involved. You know, you had some, um, some big people from other sports that wanted to, to get in on this, you know, and I thought, you know, for the people that thought outdoor soccer was boring, maybe this is something that, that they would like, you know, it had more action. It had, because people back then, just like today, some people will say, well, there's not enough goals. There's not enough this, uh, whatever, whatever their complaint is. But back then plenty of goals. Right. And, and it was fast moving. It was, like I said, it was like hockey on grass. Right. So uh, I know what a hockey power play looks like and we would do the same thing with soccer so that the transition was was easy i would say and and back then and this is what maybe your younger listeners won't remember the highest drawing indoor team attendance was do you know who that was in the 80s Uh, i want to say it was the st louis steamers no right highest indoor i'm saying any sport any sport they outdrew nhl and nba Yep. The one year yeah, when, they, when they were at their height, because back then I think the Checkerdome was like maybe a 19,000 seater, something like that. And I think the second most attendance, uh, attendance figure was Edmonton when they had Gretzky there. But there was a period of time where the number one spectator sport attendance wise for all of the indoor sports was MISL and St. Louis steamers. So um, fast forward to that because there is a hockey connection here. I'm trying to remember these things. You're asking me some good questions that's making me think here, going hey, back we, to those we, days. We do nothing, if, if anything. We, we challenge our, uh, our guests to, uh, to revel in the, in the past. Okay. And, uh, hopefully it's, they're all positive memories, JP. Yeah, no, it's good. It's good. So um, back then, and even now, Mike Lang, who I think is a legendary, fantastic announcer with the Pittsburgh Penguins, uh, was doing their games. Now he's doing radio. Back then he was doing TV, uh, TV and radio. I think they were simulcasting back then. But Mike was doing some freelance soccer work with Anheuser-Busch, Bud Sports. He was uh, filling in on, on, on some games that they had. And they wanted Mike to do some indoor games as a backup in St. Louis. And Mike said to me one day, he said, you know, they want me to do it. He said, but I'm not really interested. He said, if you're interested, I can put you in touch with them. And I said, sure, absolutely interested. And so Mike put me in touch with Bud Sports, who was doing St. Louis Steamers games at the time. They called me in. I was the backup announcer to Bob Carpenter, another very excellent announcer. Sure. Um, doesn't get doesn't get his due, but Bobby was great with um, basketball, football, baseball. I think he still does baseball with the Washington Nationals, if I'm not mistaken. And Bob has a nice gig going. He's the voice of the St. Louis Steamers. He's from that area, you know, the Midwest area. But Bob got another contract offer, and he left as I was his backup. And, you know, the the chips seemed to fall my way because I went from his backup to his successor, and we're talking 1986, and here's the World Cup coming. So the timing was right, and that's how I got my first I would say big gig, which was to be you know one of the announcers, uh, the the only the only announcer I guess, only play by play guy back in those days, 1986 World Cup, Bud Sports had the rights, they got it on ESPN, it was three in the booth off the monitor, me Shep Messing, and Seamus Mallon. 
Very interesting. So, uh, so that uh, almost sort of solidified your. Uh, you almost became sort of the uh, the default, if you will, voice of soccer in this country, almost uh, yeah. uh, uh, by design or or unwittingly. I, I, that's it's interesting. Well, I, I think you have to. Yeah, it's a good question too because I think um, um, you could say by design, but you also have to be lucky, right? I mean, if, if Mike Lang doesn't make that intro, um, maybe somebody else gets it. If Bob Carpenter doesn't get a job offer. I think at the time it was Lorimar, maybe Lorimar Productions. If Bob doesn't get that offer, maybe Bob is, is the soccer guy now, you know, maybe he never does the other stuff, but you know, back in those days, you'd have to, you'd have to Google this. I don't remember how many games we did, but it was not a lot of games. I want to say maybe like 15 games, something like that. And I think NBC had, had other games as well, but uh, we didn't even do half of the games of the world cup back then. But back then, um, I became the voice because there was, there was so little soccer going on then. Right. So it was indoor soccer. So if, if you're the voice of the MISL game of the week, you're the voice of soccer, like automatically. And ironically, I ended up going into other sports like college basketball, because I thought to myself, you know, there's so little soccer on TV and right now I'm the guy, but what if next week I'm not the guy or next year I'm not the guy. Now I'm an unemployed soccer guy with no other real experience. So that's when I started doing other sports more, more intently or intensely uh, like college basketball. And then I got some freelance hockey work as well. And um, that's what I did. You know, and then you fast forward later, I ended up, um, getting my NHL hockey gig with the Atlanta Thrashers, but we're I'm skipping a couple of decades there, I guess, with that story. No, that's fine. I, I um, before we uh, leave that decade, though, uh, any uh, sort of uh, gauzy memories of uh, of the major indoor soccer league generally? I mean, you you mentioned St. Louis, yeah. this Kansas City, and Pittsburgh. You know, some of the crowds and and the freneticism and the you know just it's just wild times. I mean, the sort of you know human pinball element and the the, the, the showcase yeah. of the the the, the, the lie wikis, You know, with the with the, the the steam and the the, the uh, right. disco lights and all this kind of stuff, um, what did you what did you think you stumbled into here? I mean, besides sort yeah. of being that voice, right? Uh, uh, was this was this WWE like, or was this kind of like really? Cool no, 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 because this was real. No, this was right. real. Uh, there was no script to this, you know. But the the Lie Wikis were fantastic marketers of the sport. I think MISL knew how to promote it. Like in Pittsburgh, you know, the, the theme was hot legs and, and the Rod Stewart song would come out. That was um, how we, we went with our TV commercials. That's how um, the music was played at the arena. Uh, I think when they, when they came out for the opening introductions, they came through, uh, through a, an open ball or something like that. And, and um the music was from fame, just the music as the players were introduced. But what I do remember is Pittsburgh, Cleveland, whenever they played, especially in Cleveland, couldn't get a ticket. Cavaliers were getting 7,000, 8,000 people a game. Uh, Cleveland folks was filling the building. The best players were playing indoors. So if picture today with, with the great players we have in Major League Soccer, that would be like, if those guys went and played indoors, that's what you'd have. Because we had players that, again, the younger people don't know who these players are, but like a Steve Jungle, fantastic. Bronco Segoda, fantastic. The late Stan Trelecki, sorry to see that he passed away recently. An unbelievable talent. 
the stuff that these guys could do. And they were all outdoor players, but you know, they wanted to come to America and it was in soccer that was paying at that time, you know, it was low, but it was still six figures. You know, some of those guys were hundred thousand year players. Stan was probably, I'm going to guess, you know, over two, you know, we had Paul child that was playing there. There were so many great names. Precky, Precky was like 18 or 19 years old when he came over and he was fantastic to watch. So I, I remember the atmosphere in a lot of these buildings was crazy like it is in, in the other sports. Uh, I remember the great players that we had, you know, all the stories, all the characters from the, the legendary coach, Don Popovic, uh, to his running battles all the time with his best player, Steve Jungle, um, the television games that we did. You know, there was a lot of good things that we had. And at one time, at one time, in Pittsburgh, we, I say we, Pittsburgh Spirit, outdrew the Pittsburgh Penguins. And it wasn't by a great margin, and it's not like we were both doing well, but maybe Pittsburgh was, maybe the Spirit was about maybe eight or 9,000 a game, and the Penguins were about seven or eight. But we were outdrawing them. And then Pittsburgh signed a guy named Mario Lemieux, and then, then it all changed. But before Mario, Pittsburgh Spirit uh, had better attendance figures than the Pittsburgh Penguins. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, we had uh, Doug Verb uh, on a, a couple episodes ago, and he's actually uh, uh, putting together an MISL uh, reunion uh, sometime, I think it's in December in Las Vegas, uh, something that I want to hopefully be part of and maybe attend and stuff. But I, everybody I talk to, you know, in the related to or part of uh, the old MISL, I mean, there's nothing but uh, amazing uh, stories and memories and just about the intensity uh, the high caliber player, obviously the fact that there was really, especially in the mid to later 80s, no real top tier professional outdoor version of the sport. Right. Uh, right. And the fans just sort of, they ate it up and the excitement was there, was ma- almost made for television. And frankly, the innovations too, right? The the introductions during the, uh, before the game and, you know, those kinds of things are, are things that actually are part of pro sports now. People just take for granted. Yeah, I think Tim Lywicki back in those days used to say, you know, before you can sell the steak, you would sell the sizzle. You know, what's what's the thing people uh, more involved in the game? And and back then, too, players did a ton of work in the community. I mean, they were making appearances all over the place. And soccer players, like hockey players, are, you know, the greatest people, the most accessible people, probably the most humble of all of the athletes. So, you know, they did it. And they enjoyed being a part of the community. And, and we found, and we still find today, you know, soccer players that play in various cities, when they retire, you know, instead of going back to their native country or, or where they were born in the States, you know, stay in that area and, and become part of the fabric of that soccer club. Well, clearly, though, you're, you're obviously getting uh, attention not only for your indoor chops, but also your ability to, to call the uh, the international version of the game and you mentioned 86 was a very limited uh, yet growing window for for the sport. But this, make no mistake, right? Uh, I think uh, quintessentially uh, you will always be uh, connoted with uh, a very famous event uh, leading up to the 1990 World Cup, and that is obviously Trinidad and Tobago in 1989. Um, you know, maybe you can give our audience a bit of a sense of sort of the what World Cup qualifying was like in the, the late 80s and you being the effectively the voice of U.S. soccer to the point of it being, you know, how big an audience that is, you, you sort of alluded yeah. to it before. Um, did you 
Did you know at calling that game and Caligiuri's goal in particular that uh, that something you know on another level was starting to occur, or was that again just simply a gig and and you were just calling calling the action like you saw it, it being the uh, pro soccer yeah. player you were? Uh, hey, I live in the team. moment. I live in the moment, so I didn't know. The only thing, the only thing we all knew was that the U.S. was going to qualify now for the 1990 World Cup. That's all that, that we really knew at that time, right? You know, would, would the 94 World Cup be successful? Would the U.S. qualify for future World Cups? Would they start a, a brand-new outdoor league? Who knew, right? Those were the stories that were going on at the time. But I just remember, whenever I do speaking engagements, I, I don't do many. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that's one of the things that I'm good at. But when I, when I do do speaking engagements, I, I talk about two games. One of them is the one you're referring to, and the other one is the 1999 Women's World Cup final because those are memories of not just the game itself, but the lead-up to the game. So I can remember for Trinidad and Tobago, knowing people were asking me back then, you know, um, can the U.S. win this? They have to win the game, right? A draw does them no good. And I said, I'm glad it's like that because I said, at that time, I said, I don't think our guys know how to play for a draw. It's not in our culture. You know, Americans are used to winning, going for the win. So I said, I'm glad that a draw doesn't do it. And I said, we have a young kid in goal, Tony Miola, very confident kid. And I said, I think we can get it done. I don't think they're going to score against them. So I, I do think we can get it done. That was always my thought. So going back to Trinidad and Tobago, I can remember flying in there into their country back then. I don't know if you can still do this in Trinidad. I know you can't do it in the States anymore after nine 11, but uh, there were fans there yelling and screaming loud music, you know, that met the team at the airport. I can remember that almost as if it was yesterday. You know, I can remember going to the hotel. I can remember noise around the hotel. Um, I remember that when we went to the stadium or before we went to the stadium, our producer, normally we would go to a game, let's say two hours before the game. And our producer says, I know you guys aren't going to like this, he said, but here's what time you need to be at the game. And I want to say it was like five hours before the game. And I said, uh, this uh, this is a producer, um, Jim Maroney was his name. Uh, he too has um, since passed away. But Jim looked at me and he said, JP, I know you don't want to come five hours early. But he said, but I'm going to tell you this. He said, if you come five hours early, I can promise you that you will call this game. He said, if you come two hours early, I can't even promise that you get into the stadium. He said, there's only so many seats that are available. He said, and at some point, they're not letting people in. So he said, it's up to you. And I said, okay, I'll be there five hours early. <laughs> and I wondered, I wondered. Um, you know, what I'd be staying, oh, like, well, what's it going to be like? You're never at a game that early. And they let people in several hours before kick. They played music. It'd be like bringing a tailgate party inside for four or five hours. <laughs> the music never stopped. I enjoyed watching it. I think it uplifted me. I think that I never, I just soaked it all in, you know, everything from uh, the people in the seats early everyone dressed in red. 
except for one or two rows of USA fans and, and dignitaries. But the rest of the stadium was red and the stadium was packed several hours before kick. Those are the things that I remember about it. You know, I remember Calajari's goal. It seemed to, to come out of nowhere. I remember the day before in, in a, a taxi seeing that not only, uh, not only did people think this was a, a huge deal, they painted their houses red. They painted their cars red. Like, we don't do that here in this country. We paint our faces red for sporting events or, or whatever color your team is, right? But we don't imagine telling your wife you're going to paint the house whatever because you know, your team is playing that day. Like, it was weird. It was strange. But it was a long-lasting memory. I, I've never forgot that. To think that somebody would um, paint their car or their house based on, like, one game. And they declared, the next day it was declared a national holiday in Trinidad because they thought they were going to win the game. So it was a, it was a long night. And I, I remember how, how happy everyone was in the end. We had a lot of the players' parents were at the game and at the hotel. And, and I'm sure even they never knew how far this would go. We joked back then that, that the Caligiuri goal was the, the shot heard around the world. But um, when I talk in front of groups now, I call it the billion-dollar goal because I think that if you look at what has happened since, all the World Cups that we've qualified for, uh, Major League Soccer starting, you know, expansion fees, television money, sponsorship, it would a billion is nothing. I mean, that goal made it all happen, gave us the momentum, gave us you know the Nike contract, gave us everything that we have today all because of that. He doesn't score there, you know. Where's the interest come 94? I mean, we're still going to sell out stadiums, but, you know, do we have MLS? I don't know. All right, just when it was getting interesting, let's uh, let's bring this uh, to a grinding halt, shall we? Ah, just kidding. Uh, we got to pay the bills around here, and uh, our friends at Audible have been very helpful in attempting to allow us to pay some of those bills, and uh, we want to call them out now uh, and remind you that uh, a free audiobook download is yours for the taking, and also a free one-month uh, subscription to the service uh, of Audible at audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Again, audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free one-month trial of the Audible service and interestingly, most interestingly, a free audiobook download for you to enjoy. 180,000 titles and growing uh, every day to choose from, and there's uh, absolutely no excuse to not find at least one title amongst that uh, cavernous uh, selection uh, available to you that uh, you won't find to be enjoyable and uh, and good for the soul, including uh, a couple of books that might be interesting to our audience. And yes, some new ones, frankly, uh, that I'm finally listening to. One that I'm listening to right now uh, is by Carson Cunningham. It's narrated by Paul Bamer, and it's called Underbelly Hoops, Adventures in the CBA, a.k.a. the Crazy Basketball Association, which is really, of course, about uh, the Continental Basketball Association, which for many years uh, was sort of this ragtag minor league uh, of the NBA. And that's uh, it's a book I'm about two chapters into right now, and uh, hopefully maybe a guest will get uh, for a future episode. Also, uh, in my queue, next up, 
uh, is another guest that I'd like to get. Uh, and her book that she wrote is also uh, narrated by her. Her name is Jeannie Buss. And of course, Jeannie is the daughter of Jerry Buss, of course, the uh, wildly successful founder of the Los Angeles Lakers and the LA Forum. And Jeannie is, uh, is clearly today the brains behind uh, the Los Angeles Lakers today. Uh, she and her brothers were uh, active, of course, in things like, along with her father, uh, World Team Tennis, uh, the Major Indoor Soccer League with the LA Lasers, all kinds of stuff. So uh, her book is next on my list. That's called Laker Girl. And that too is available on Audible. And again, it's one of the uh, the many thousands of titles that you can choose from uh, when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And again, you too can get your free audiobook download to give it a try, perhaps one of those two, or perhaps one of the other 180,000 titles uh, available to you as well. Uh, give it a try, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Thanks for listening and back to our conversation. Well, it's also interesting, too, because uh, having seen that game live and, and knowing how rare uh, a broadcast like that was at the time, right? I mean, you know, having been a um, uh, an abandoned NASL fan as a kid and as a young adult, um, you know, not much to sort of fall back on aside from the indoor game, which is exciting and, and whatnot. Um, but on the international stage, right, I mean, uh, if you wanted to follow, uh, you know, for the prelude to the uh, 86 World Cup, as well as much of the uh, the qualifying games for the uh, leading up to the 90 World Cup. Um, you know, as a as an English-speaking American soccer fan, not many of them out there at that time, right? Um, right. You'd have to watch, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the predecessor to Univision, S-E-N, S-A-E-N-A, or S-I-N, the, the Spanish International Network, and Tony Torado, and, and, and speaking in very heavy Spanish, uh, and, and through the, the very fuzzy reception of often a UHF channel just to just to even see this thing and even understand right. what was going on, right? So the, in right. some respect, right. the, the, not only was the game and Caligiuri's goal and, and all that a breakthrough, but but frankly, you were basically part of that sort of step out, if you will, of yeah. U.S. English broadcast of soccer. And imagine we had no social media back then. So um, it was still a significant achievement back then. Uh, but since that time, you know, now you have social media, right? Now you have all of these games from all around the world. You can't say to me, boy, I wish I could watch this game because you can, right? There's, we, somebody did this, uh, did this note, like it was last year. Someone said you could watch more EPL games if you lived in the United States than you could if you lived in England, which was shocking to me, but it was true. So we're kind of spoiled, thankfully, now. But, but back then, you know, when I'm doing soccer, like I said, you're, you're doing the MISL game of the week and, and you're like the lead soccer guy because that's, that's all we had. We didn't have the outdoor game like we have it now. So now we have all of these MLS teams and, and a league that's growing and may get up to 30 teams at, at some point. You know, a lot of good, exciting broadcasters, um, analysts, uh, former players that are now getting into it. And, and we can still watch the greatest games from around the world, whether it's international friendlies, you wait for Champions League, uh, Club World Cup, whatever it is, various leagues, Bundesliga is on, Serie A, uh, EPL, La Liga. You can watch the French League. I mean, there's there's no league. If you want to watch it, you'll find it. And I think that's that's great now, especially for, for the younger fans that we're trying to cultivate. 
So were you were you sensing that uh, the Major League Soccer thing, uh, uh, you know, obviously uh, tied to uh, what was supposed to be the legacy of the '94 World Cup? Obviously, the beginnings of that, you know, underway and stuff. I I, I got to imagine you thought that uh, it would be uh, an opportunity not only for the broadcasters but yourself in particular, given your seniority, shall we say, in the sport of soccer in yep. this country, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, by '96, now I had done '86 World Cup. 90 World Cup, 94 World Cup on radio. So, you know, I'm three World Cups in. So, yeah, I mean, I, I figured I would definitely be involved. I didn't know where. Uh, I thought I would actually be the, the first voice of the, of the Metro Stars, but I was, doing, um, I was doing something else back then, and I was going to miss some games. I know what it was. It was Chicago Wolves. At that time, it was the International Hockey League. Sure. And, and I... I had told the Metro Stars people, you know, I might, I might miss like the first game or the second game, whatever it was. And there was some kind of a miscommunication, whatever it was. And, you know, they said, no, that's, that's okay. Um, you, I had heard later he was going to miss too many games. It was like one or two games I was going to miss. So I ended up being the first voice of the Columbus crew. And I worked those games uh, the first year with Ty Keogh. I think the second year was with Bill McDermott. And it was fun back in those days. Columbus Crew and, and that old uh, logo they had that looked like what the village people people used to say. Sure, and also the hardest working team, right? Yeah, and, the hardest working team. Yeah, and and obviously in in the uh, the old Ohio Stadium, well, not the old Ohio Stadium, but the the Ohio State you know, I, University Stadium, right, yeah. which is just gigantic and, yep. and narrow, right? Do you remember how narrow yeah. this that field was? Yeah, but the funny thing is, I never did a game out of there. We only did road games that first year uh, and second year, so. I never, I've never been inside of that stadium. <laughs> That's interesting. Well, so, yeah. so, but so clearly you're, you're, sti- you're sticking around the sport. And so it, clearly though, hockey and soccer are kind of like your, your go-tos, right? That's like, that you're essentially yeah. known for and get, yeah. getting your, your, your significant work with. How did the, um, how does, uh, how does the WUSA come about uh, in the, in the early 2000s, right? That's uh, a nice fledgling league. Uh, yeah. And the, and yeah. right. And the story. The, the the money behind that right was significant right it was it was yeah it was supposed to last longer than it did but it didn't uh but back then let's see you're going back to what 2000 was yeah so i i'm i'm at the top at that point right i'm doing the 1999 world cup so i i was the i was probably the only choice back then you know to to do the games because of 99 and, I'm and sorry, by we 99, should, we should probably back up. Right. I, we, we, I did overlook okay. that. Right. 99. Right. Was clearly another seminal moment in your yeah. career. You mentioned it earlier. Yeah. For those yeah. who I had done the 95 World Cup first the sure. World Cup in Sweden and then 99. So by the time 2000 came along, I had done two women's World Cups. And back then, you know, the women were not on television all that much. So I was probably I don't want to say I was the only guy doing him, but there weren't many. But obviously, too, the iconic call of that final game and Brandy Chastain yeah. with the uh, with the 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 sports bra that uh, you know launched a thousand covers. I mean, you know, another iconic yeah. moment, right? I mean, for you and uh, for yeah, sport. yeah, yeah. Well, I I take nothing for granted. Um, I think I've been very fortunate. I mean, I've worked hard to get where I am, but I think I've also been very fortunate. You have to be in the right place at the right time to have those situations and. The Chastain, uh, I mean, the Women's World Cup was fantastic, right? It's, it's on ESPN. That tournament 
when they first um, thought about having the Women's World Cup here, originally they talked about high school stadiums and college stadiums. And then Marla Messing, I give credit to, she was running it. She was the leader of it. And she thought, you know, Americans are um, big-time sports people. They like the big sports, you know, like Olympics, World Cups. This is who we are. You know, we can fill these stadiums. We can go into bigger stadiums. And they did. And I watched that tournament grow um, from the TV commercials that they used to do to appearances on the David Letterman show. They were on the nightly news. And it was such, such a big buildup, such a big buildup all the way. Thousands of people going to the games, uh, more and more people watching them on television. And when the World Cup first started, Women's World Cup, people asked me, you know, did the U.S. have to win it? for it to be successful. And I said, no, they don't have to win it. But I, I said, I do think they have to, they have to get to the final. You know, they can't be knocked out of the quarters, certainly. Uh, but, but I do think they have to get to the final. But when we got to that stage, I had changed my mind. I said, well, now they got to win it, right? Because this was such a high that even though I, I still think it would have been a success, I might've been in the minority saying it was a great World Cup or a successful World Cup if China had won that game instead of the U.S. You know, I, I still think sometimes we define too much in terms of winning and losing. You know, when people tell me that Lionel Messi, his legacy might be tarnished if he doesn't win a World Cup, seriously, he could be the greatest player of all time. Could be. I'm not saying he is, but he could be. It's not his fault that he hasn't won a World Cup to this point. You know, a lot of great players in many sports don't lift championship trophies. So uh, a lot of people might have thought that would have been a failure if the U.S. didn't win, but they won, and in dramatic fashion, right? I mean, you couldn't have written a better script to that. Could not have. It, w it was not possible to write a better script. And I apologize. I was I did not watch that game on television and hear your call until after because I was in the stands. And uh, yes, oh, that's just cool. electric, that's right? Cool. And Okay, yeah. so, so let me ask you this then. Okay, so having been in that moment, uh, been part of, of now two uh, major women's World Cup uh, presentations and, and the dramatic, shall we say, exclamation point at the uh, end of the tournament in 1999, right. why then the WUSA and its three-year multi-million dollar fail, shall we say? It seems like it was teed up to succeed. Yeah, a lot of reasons why it failed. I think one was back in those days, they, they wanted nothing to do with Major League Soccer. And I think Major League Soccer by then had gone, what, four years in, into their operations. And the women, I think, because they were so successful, and remember, this is coming off 1998 Men's World Cup where USA finished last. So here are the women with all of this... Um, popularity and power, if you will, so they could call the shots, right? And they wanted to do it on their own, you know, and the organizers behind it didn't want MLS involvement. They thought that was the way to go. And so I think that was one mistake. I think playing in some of the bigger venues was another mistake because it was very costly. And then they try to emulate some MLS teams with huge staffs, huge staffs. And there were some executives back there that were making a lot of money. And I think that, and, and also the, the players are making very good money compared to today. Um, the women in the NWSL, nowhere near the money that 
was being paid back in 2000. So um, I'm trying to remember. I think they had money uh, that was supposed to last them five years, I think, and by the third year, they were wiped out. So I, I think there were a lot of mistakes made. Uh, no MLS involvement, I think, was one. Uh, the staffs were, were big and expensive. The stadiums, in some cases, you know, were very expensive. Uh, players' costs were expensive. And they, they wanted, to, to their credit, they wanted to do it right. But maybe they should have taken smaller steps in, instead of larger steps. I, I still think the league was very good you know, and very competitive. Uh, and it was, even though it was in its first year, you know, considered the best league in the world because we had all the best players. Well, and your broadcasts certainly hold up very well, too. Uh, anybody just goes on YouTube and sees, uh, you know, like, for example, the final on, uh, on TNT. I mean, the, the, those games were very well produced as well, right? So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't for a lack of that part of the equation either. No, Turner was the uh, television partner the, the year that I did it in, in 2000. And, and the Turner Network is fantastic. I've had uh, great experiences with them. 1990 World Cup, but later working with them with the Atlanta Thrashers. So they always treat it like it's a big deal and they they gave the game the respect that it needed i think the only bad part was you'd have to research this too but i can remember like some really early kickoffs i remember like noon kickoffs which is a you know a tough time i think on a saturday to get viewers so i i think that the games were very very well produced and directed extremely well done but i don't think our ratings reflected the kind of shows that we put out there all right, well, let me ask you this sort of like this two-part question, and it's, it's actually related. So I'm really – so you've, you've, ex, you've explained a whole bunch of different sort of uh, ports of call, shall we say, in your professional career, which I think in many respects is very indicative of uh, – and maybe it's a little less so now or, or maybe it still is. So it's sort of the, dare I call it, peripatetic nature of, uh, of broadcasting uh, in, in sports, right? To, you know, to become the voice of something, right, it almost seems like it's a uh, – uh, you know, it's almost like a, uh, uh, you know, a holy grail in some respects, right? Because it, it, it probably establishes some level of uh, continuity and, um, uh, and, and able to root yourself. Uh, I, I guess what I'm really curious is, and this is going to lead obviously into the thrashers, right? Because here you are going, you know, back and forth from soccer now into, into hockey for an extended period of time with the thrashers. Maybe our audience could benefit from just a little bit of a sense of what is the life of a professional sports broadcaster, right? Because, you know, I think people have this sort of uh, perhaps incorrect perception that, uh, you know, today, obviously, you're, you're part of the Fox Sports Broadcasting uh, a group and, and, you know, probably contractually so, but it's not always sort of easy. I think, uh, I think many people don't realize that there's a lot of it is, you know, I want to say gig to gig, but it's you're, you're, you're constantly looking or, or looking for scenarios and situations and, and broadcast opportunities that, you know, aren't yeah, necessarily yeah. rooted in you know, long-term viability or sustainability, right? Right, right, right. Um, there's very few, like five, even five-year contracts in, in our world, right? I mean, when you see guys that have lasted with one network for so, so many years, you know, it's not because they had like a 20-year contract. It's maybe they had three years here, then they got a four-year deal, then they got a five-year deal, whatever that is, right? But, you know, those are, you know, that's the Bob Costas of the world, you know, the Al Michaels of the world, you know, they're, they're guys that, you know, can be affiliated and now Michaels wasn't on one network, but, but he's had a long and distinguished career, one of the all time greats. But I think when you're uh, in broadcasting, you're always focused on 
what you're doing. You should be anyway, because if, if not, you're not going to get better at what you do, right? So you're focused on, on that job, but you're always thinking about other opportunities, right? Uh, not, not even, you're not even looking for them, but you hear about something and then you think, boy, I wonder if I should apply for that. Or somebody calls you and, and says, you know, this, this thing is opening up. You think you might have an interest and you think, you know, I'm happy here, but that's interesting, right? That's very interesting. So, you know, to connect you to like the, the thrashers part of it, here I was, I spent 10 years in minor league hockey. I came so close to various NHL jobs that I did not get. And a lot of the guys that I was in the minor leagues with ended up and are still working with the NHL clubs that they got those jobs with. And back then, NHL was probably, I want to say, maybe 16 teams. You know, so And then some of them were Canadian, right? So not many opportunities would open up in the NHL. So when I left and I did indoor soccer, you know, I put the hockey stuff on hold. Then I told you I did some college basketball. I did some uh, minor league hockey with the Wolves. Again, that was a situation where, um, as I remember now, Randy Hahn, uh, a friend of mine, from soccer was the voice of the San Jose Sharks. And he was going to do, uh, they called him and saw, asked if he was available, if he knew anybody for the Chicago Wolves. And Randy thought of me, put me in touch with them. And I did, I think it was two years with the Wolves. And they ran that team like an NHL team. And it gave me another fix for hockey. And back then I also did the IHL game of the week, International Hockey League. And, and then that was it for a while. I did no more hockey for quite a few years. And then I get a phone call one day from a guy that I worked with in Italy, 1990 World Cup. He was like an associate producer back then. And now he's running Turner Sports. And he calls me and he says, the Thrasher's play-by-play guy is going to miss some games. I know you have a hockey background. Would you like to do them? And I said, sure. The, the announcer um, was in the process of adopting a child from another country and was going to miss some games. So I said, sure, I'll do it. So I think I did five games with the Thrashers. And I thought, wow, this is fantastic. But I knew it was a, a fill-in, and that was it. That's all that it was. And then a few years later, he called me again, and he said, listen, this job is opening up. Don't know if you're interested, but if you are, you know, you'll be a very serious candidate for it. I need to know if you're interested. And I thought, sure. You know, this was, uh, I wasn't going to give up on soccer, not at all. But my, my dream was really, uh, my dream was to be an NHL guy initially. Then it became, you know, the soccer. And then the real dream was, wow, could I do them both? And, and the Turner thing gave me that opportunity. And back then I was also working for the Metro stars at that time. And then, and then into the Red Bulls. And that was probably, um, I've had so many great memories and I've worked with so many great organizations, teams, and, and people. But I would, I would say if I had to look at career wise, the happiest time of my life, I would say it was those five years where I was combining working with, um, Thrashers, and then Metro Stars slash Red Bulls because I had the best of both worlds, the two sports that I loved the most, and I was able to do them both. 
and and make good money on both, you know, with, with contracts with both teams. So it was all good at that point. All right, well, well, we'll round the corner here. I don't want to keep you too much longer, but uh, so maybe your insights. What is it about hockey in Atlanta then, right? I mean, by the way, your, your broadcasts for the Thrashers games, the, the pieces that are still out there, uh, and there's not a lot of them, frankly. I don't know. Somebody from the old Sports South uh, uh, Archives Department has not been uh, on YouTube lately. But uh, ah. the the excitement in your call, it's clear that you are you are a hockey pro by all, by all accounts. Um, and, and your enthusiasm is, is, uh, is, is just, it's fantastic. Um, I, um, I'm just curious as to your perception, right? That was the second go round for pro or the big league, uh, NHL yeah. hockey in Atlanta. Why do you yeah. think it didn't stick? Was it because of the sport and the, and the, and the, and the, the region, or do you think it was other things like the way it was managed and, or I don't know, other, other, yeah. other things. You know, they laugh. I laugh now when I when I hear people say Atlanta's a bad sports city. Really? Atlanta United's getting fifty thousand people to games. I don't about, think anybody you know, saw that coming. To right? come to the games, right? Saw that coming, right? Well, I, I I didn't see it coming until I heard how many season tickets that they had sold. You know, then then I saw it coming. But but it's not a bad sports city. And what people forget about the Thrashers is that on the weekends we would get the sixteen thousand people to come into the game. Sixteen, seventeen thousand people to come in. It was the, the, the Tuesday night games, the Wednesday night games, the Thursday night games where, you know, you're looking at 10,000 people maybe, you know, at those games. But I think the, the failure of the Thrashers, I, I can put it this way, uh, Turner owned the team. And if Turner still owned the team, I think that they would have been fine because Turner runs it a certain way. And I think that they would have been more committed to it from a, from a business sense. When Turner sold it, it was a group of people that came in and no disrespect to any of them, you know, as individuals or as business people, because they were all successful. But in my opinion, they were not uh, the right people for it. You know, they were not hockey people making hockey decisions. I I don't think they were as well funded, maybe, as as they could have been. Uh, We had some good players there. We had Ilya Kovalchuk in his prime playing at the same time as Marion Hosa. And we lost them both, you know, had to trade them because, you know, they wanted out because they didn't see anything working in Atlanta. You know, they made the playoffs once uh, and they're out in four straight games against the Rangers. So, you know, they never, they never had the success. I mean, they had a lot of tragedy too. I mean, remember the the car accident, Uh, Danny Heatley was involved in it and Dan Snyder died like a, I think it was a week before the season started, something like that. That was my first game was with Atlanta, um, you know, moment of silence for Dan Snyder, you know, and um, paying tribute to that young skater who lost his life. Uh, that's the way my career started, you know, in Atlanta with the Thrashers. So there were a lot of things that were, you know, bad luck. But I think if, if they had... Um, the kind of ownership that we see in some of these successful places. Uh, I do think it could have worked there for sure. There's so many people from not just Atlanta, you know, transplants from all over, you know, from all over, especially the Northeast and the hockey country and Canadians. So there's no doubt in my mind, if it was run well, that they would still be there. So it's unfortunate because, you know, when you look at these teams right now, Arizona Coyotes, they're not doing any better than, than the Thrashers attendance-wise. If you look at the numbers, Florida Panthers, 
Carolina Hurricanes. Um, a lot of empty seats in those stadiums. Um, Atlanta, not there anymore because somebody wants to buy them and move them out. Whereas in some of these other cities, you know, in Arizona, um, all kinds of problems, right? But they've not, they've not moved them out of there. Carolina just has a new owner now. Peter Carmanos, you know, kept them in there for a long, long time. And now he's got a new owner there, but new owners talking about getting it done in Carolina. And the Panthers have had ownership changes too. You know, we've seen that throughout the NHL. But in Atlanta, you know, they didn't have somebody in the city that said, I'll take this over. You know, I'll buy it. I'll run it. I mean, if Arthur Blank had run the Atlanta Thrashers, they'd still be there and they'd be a playoff team. All right. Well, two questions, one one directly related, and then we'll get to sort of we'll, we'll end it with your sort of World Cup observations as you get ready for Russia in a couple of weeks. Um, so you're, you're, you're talking about the NHL. And actually, ironically, this week's episode that we have out there out posted out in podcast land is with uh, these two guys out in Hartford called the Whaler guys who won't let go yeah. of the dream about re- returning uh, the uh, the Whalers yeah. somehow back to uh, to Hartford. And, and some call it a pipe dream, some call it. But they are very tenacious. And, and you, you wonder yeah. that passion, right, which is very genuine versus, let's say, an artificially plopped down franchise like some of yeah. some of which you mentioned. Um mm. But you know, I, I you know, for that sort of uh, hockey uh, lust, I guess you know, for any uh, pro broadcaster uh, like yourself or uh, a player, right? You know, Seattle seems like it's going to beckon uh, for six hundred million bucks, right? So, yeah, I guess I wonder, uh, and maybe not sort of your opinions on the NHL, but it's interesting, right? You see how many franchises and now and Las Vegas, geez, what what a what an amazing story that I, that truly I don't think anybody saw coming. This year, no, nobody did. Nobody um, did. Nobody even in Vegas saw that one coming. No, really. Agreed. And so, but you know, you'd, how many, you'd be lying if you said that. If you right. said you knew this was going to happen, you'd be lying. No, sure. Lying. And, and and how many teams can the NHL support? And now, now you look at and juxtapose that, say, with MLS. So this is my wind up here for your opinions on on sort of the state of Major League Soccer, right? And and you know, nothing is perfect. We haven't made the World Cup this year. Uh, and you know, there are people who grouse about sort of the central ownership of the league and all that. And there are clearly teams in MLS, right, going on 24-plus teams. Um, are we possibly maybe reaching a saturation point, uh, you know, NHL, MLS, uh, or is this just sort of the nature of, of the beast and, and maybe a sign of just the maturity that we're finally, finally at now with this pro level of soccer in this country? Yeah, I think it's the nature of the beast. And, and you know, NHL really didn't want to expand, right? But if... if if Seattle wants to pay $500 million, these guys are not stupid. You know, I mean, you have to find new revenue streams, right? Because if you're like, let's say you're an NHL owner and you're filling your building, where else are you going? You know, you've got national television money. You've got your local television money, you know, regional television money. But now you need more money, right, to operate. So, like, what's the next level? Where, where are you going to go? Well, divide $500 million with all of these owners and they don't have to do anything. And now I think now they're more ready to accept expansion when they see what Vegas can do. Seattle's ready to come in. Houston wants to come in from what I've read. You know, you still have uh, Quebec city dangling out there. I don't want to burst the bubble of the, the Hartford guys because I was a whaler season ticket holder, but we don't have a stadium. You know, our, our building is old needs to be either torn down and, and have a new one or spend a massive amount of money 
to get it to NHL standards. And when you have competition like you have in some of these other places, and look at the building in Kansas City. Uh, everyone thought they were going to get an NHL team years ago, right? They, don't, they have no NHL, no NBA, and they might have, they, they probably have the best building in the United States, which has no major tenant in it, yep. I would say. Yep. Because every, every major building, right, in any major city would have at least an NHL or an NBA team in there, and they don't. So, and, and they would be ahead of Hartford too. So I, I think there's a lot of interest here for sure. If we had a, if we had a 17,000 new stadium here uh, and, and somebody with deep pockets, sure, it could happen. It could happen. But, you know, we're, we're way behind so many other cities. But I admire those guys and their passion for it. I think that's great. You know, you still see Hartford wireless jerseys all over, not just here, but in other parts of the country. I think they're number one in merchandise sold for defunct NHL teams. And how? By a wide margin. And what? And what? What of MLS? Right? Are we? Uh, are we reaching a saturation point there, or uh, is the sky the limit still uh, for? For you mean when you say saturation point, uh, do you number mean of number teams. of teams? Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it comes down to, to this, right? Promotion relegation. It's not going to happen. So it's not happening in our lifetime, in my opinion. Not not under the present structure. I mean, if you're spending the kind of money that these guys have spent. Uh, imagine a new team coming into MLS and let's say they're going to pay $200 million to get in. And, and they know that if they don't do well this year, they're going to get relegated and they're going to be playing in the second division. They're not signing up for that. They're not. And the guys that are already in it, like if you asked, if you asked, uh, let's say Atlanta United, are you guys for promotion relegation? They might say, Sure, that's fine with us because they're not going to be relegated. But talk to some of the other teams. You know, talk to uh, the bottom ten teams in Major League Soccer. Ask that how they would feel about playing in the second division. Uh, it, you don't have the balloon payments that you have over in Europe. I'm, I'm not against promotion relegation, not at all. I just know from from knowing what we're dealing with here that that's not an option involving Major League Soccer. So I think at some point, what MLS has to do is either um, create some form of, of promotion relegation to justify how many teams they're going to have, or, you know, they may end up doing this, and I know they don't really want to do this, but if they become so big, they might have to say the East just plays against the East and the West just plays against the West, two games against each team, and then you meet again in, the, in whatever playoffs that you have, because otherwise, you know, how is the schedule going to be fair? If you have, if you have 30 teams and you're going to play a, a 34 game schedule, I mean, what do you, what are you supposed to do? You know, some team has um, an unlucky schedule, well, I guess like the NFL, right? Based on record, you know, your, your schedule the next year, but with MLS, with the way the rosters changed too, I'm, I'm not sure how, but I, I think the sky is the limit for major league soccer. A lot of great cities out there but I do think they need to cap it at a certain point. I'd like to see the NASL come back and be strong. There's a lot of great cities in our country that may not be up to MLS standards, but just a notch below it. And it'll make us all stronger. We don't need promotion relegation to be successful. We don't have to be like other leagues around the world, but 
you know, if we want to have promotion relegation, you have to figure out a way that it works for the guys that have invested money in this league. And, you know, one of the, one of the groups that would not want promotion relegation would be New England. But let me tell you, the Kraft family, since 1996, just uh, do the math. How many millions and millions and millions of dollars do you think that they have spent on soccer? And do they want to be relegated? How are they going to get people to go? If they became a USL franchise, what do you think their attendance would be? If it's 18,000 a game now or somewhere in that area, where would it be in the USL where you're not, you're not seeing you know, opponents come in like a David Villa or a Zlatan or Jovinko, you know, guys that sell tickets? You don't have those guys in USL or NASL for that matter. So these guys don't want promotion relegation. And that's why I don't, I don't think we'll see it, but I think as MLS finds other ways to spend money, bring in better players, younger players. I mean, this league has improved uh, leaps and bounds on the field and off the field. And like I said, I think the sky is the limit, but nobody wants to see a 40 team MLS at least I don't. I don't want to see a 40-team MLS. So I'm hoping they cap it at a certain point and then figure out a way to make it competitive, um, not have the season end with a final in December, uh, figure out a better way to, to make the schedule work. Uh, I'm all for playoffs. So I, I, I don't even mind a single table. You know, I, I don't mind any of that stuff. I just think that the season itself is is too long. We shouldn't be playing our, our MLS Cup match in December it should be done long before then no I agree and it's a, it just kind of makes a travesty of, a, of the entire season frankly when you're right. playing in sub sub zero temperatures so but isn't right. that I mean isn't that interesting though given especially your history in this with the sport right that we're having this conversation about you know should we do pro rel or or we have too many teams and you know a substantial second and third you know tier uh, uh infrastructure you know I mean would you ever have imagined this kind of conversation 20 even 30 years ago no, great problems, right? I mean, hey, we didn't qualify for the World Cup, right? We didn't, we didn't qualify. Um, we can either do a um, couple of things, right? We can cry about it and not learn from our mistakes and, and not get better as a nation, or we can say we don't have to blow it up. Yes, we have to tweak it. Yes, we need to improve in these areas. Let's get it going right now. Let's get it started. Let's bring in some younger players. Let's do this. You know, let's let's have all of our teams playing a, a certain style. Let's develop a, a better culture. You know, we can do all of that stuff, right? Let's be positive. Let's be positive. You know, Italy didn't make the World Cup. It's a bigger tragedy there than it is in the U.S. U.S. fans may not believe it, but when Italy didn't make it, it was a much bigger tragedy there than it was here in the United States. And Argentina qualified on the last day. So... It happens. It's not a God-given right that we qualify for the World Cup. Yes, we're better than uh, we showed in, in CONCACAF. To me, right now, you know, Mexico is the best team in CONCACAF. Costa Rica is next. I think the East is third as we speak today, but they're not where they finished in CONCACAF in, in qualifying. They're certainly not that. At the very worst, they're the third best team. But I think that's probably an accurate uh, reflection of where we are right now as a country. You can't say that we're better than Mexico or Costa Rica. You know, that's, you know, you, you could have that opinion, but I think that's tough to back that up.
Yeah, but the fact, I mean, the fact that we've got, a, you know, a thriving pro league, it's on 22 years on, on, we're on now. And, uh, you know, it's just amazing. I mean, it's just amazing. You think back to your earliest days at the NASL, the ASL and the MISL, right? And, and the, those, those dark years when there wasn't even an MISL and, and the sort of prelude to the World Cup in 94. I mean, you know, right. we've come a long way in a fairly short period of time. I think it's hard to not, uh, uh, remember that and and recognize that we have come that far and you know so yeah. many things that uh, that that were just not even uh, possibly conceivable. Uh, no, just a few look at the players we're bringing in now. Look at the players. I mean, uh, do you think in even in two thousand and six, you know, pick a year, two thousand eight, did you think you'd get a player like Sebastian Tavinko that would come over here? Did you think you could get a, a player? like a Miguel Almiron that, that looks like, you know, a rising star. Uh, did you think somebody would spend $15 million on Barco? Nobody would have thought that. $15 million for one player? I mean, look at what some of these teams' player budgets are total. $15 million is a lot of cash for one player. This is a teenager that they spent that money on, by the way. So uh, MLS is growing leaps and bounds. There's a lot more to be thankful for. There's a lot more to be optimistic for. You know, you can be negative if you want. I'm not drinking the Kool-Aid. Uh, I, I do think this, you know, there's things that we'd like to see better, certainly, in, in our sport. Uh, but on the when you weigh the, the pluses and the minuses, uh, a bigger edge in the plus category for Major League Soccer. All right, last question. You're getting ready for uh, one of your biggest assignments yet. You're going to be spending ooh, almost a whole month now in uh, in Russia f- covering uh, the World Cup for for Fox for the first time. They're uh, they're carrying this uh, this package. I think you're to- you're uh, you're uh, teamed up with uh, Tony Miola in the broadcast booth. Is that correct? Yes, I am. So here's how how this comes like uh, full cycle, right? I'm calling games. Tony's playing in them, including that game in 1989. Now I'm working with Tony in the booth. And that's that's the that is that's an amazing arc isn't it yeah i think it's i think it's great you know i mean uh, to watch these guys grow uh, i've watched tony you know john harks tab ramos i've watched some girl as um as players i've watched some girl as um, coaches as um, fathers you know as people uh it's fantastic to see you know what they've done with their lives and tony and i will will be together for probably like 40 days you know we, we have to go the week before the world cup starts we have the first game, Russia, Saudi Arabia. We have some other big games, including uh, Germany, Mexico, that I'm looking forward to. And, and we'll see some of the bigger teams in the group stage. And that's all we know right now. I don't know what our schedule will be. You know, come the knockout round, there'll be a lot of factors that go into that. But uh, I'm looking forward to it. I, I'm always excited when I'm doing a World Cup. I never know when it's going to be my last one. I mean, this could be it. Uh, next year's Women's World Cup could be it, or there could be another one. Uh, I have no idea. Like I said, I try to, I try to live in the present with, um, with the career because we never know, you know, what's out there next, right? Like nobody knew that Fox was going to get three straight World Cups. Nobody knew that ESPN was going to lose it. You know, nobody knew that Turner was going to end up with the Champions League next year. Like we don't know. The broadcasting world changes on a daily basis, right? ESPN bought. You know, the Fox regionals. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's happening. All the streaming that's going on, you know, YouTube's involvement. Uh, it changes daily. So, so we know we should be thankful for the opportunities we get, which I am. And I'm, I'm thankful for this opportunity to go to Russia and be one of the announcers for Fox. I think they're going to do a great job. They spent a fortune on it. Uh, they're committed to it. They're dedicated to it. 
and they want this to be one of the best World Cups ever, and I hope we can make it that. Okay, there it is, our great conversation. We appreciate it with uh, JP Della Camera, who you will hear uh, alongside uh, Tony Miola uh, as uh, one of the uh, broadcast teams uh, covering uh, many of the major games uh, in the uh, FIFA World Cup in Russia. It starts uh, in a few days. Uh, depending on when you're hearing this, uh, this little podcast, uh, could be well underway, the tournament. Uh, hell, it could be already over, and uh, I don't know who won. Be nice to know. Uh, but we're recording this uh, way ahead of the tournament actually beginning. So uh, who knows? But hopefully it is or was a great tournament. Um, uh, JP obviously has a, a tremendous uh, a, a heritage of, uh, of calling games from, from all kinds of sports, uh, but certainly in soccer, certainly in hockey, uh, you know, and some of the stops I was even completely unaware of. Uh, but if anybody is uh, qualified to be called the dean of soccer broadcasters, uh, in the United States. It is absolutely J.P. De La Camera, and we thank him tremendously. Uh, it was a real treat to talk to him. I, uh, I couldn't appreciate it more and uh, hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, let's see, as we uh, segue uh, out of our, uh, our, our episode this week, we do want to uh, thank you all kindly for uh, all your, uh, your suggestions and your tweets and your social media uh, banter back and forth. We love it when you're interacting with the show. Uh, and of course, if you want to find out more about the show or past episodes uh, or search for things that uh, that you thought you might have heard or you uh, didn't know existed before in our dozens of episodes, by all means, go to our website. That's uh, goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, there you're going to find every single episode we've ever done. You're going to find links to all the, uh, the books and uh, promotional goodies, uh, as well as all of our social feeds. You can find us on Twitter at Good Seats Still. You will find us on uh, Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. You will find us uh, on Facebook. Uh, there's a page devoted to us. On the website, our website, you will find our email address, and you will also find a link to uh, join our email newsletter. That's a way, great way for you to be reminded every week as to who's on the uh, on the show, uh, a little bit of a snippet of such, and a quick uh, link uh, or something you can pass along to your friends uh, and let them know that they should be listening this week as well. Uh, that's, uh, that's all I got for this week. And of course, I want to thank our friend Jerry Payne uh, at Podfly Productions, podfly.net. If you need help with podcasting and production and editing and all that kind of stuff, Podfly Productions is the place to go. And you can find all the information about them at podfly.net. All right, that's it for this week. Uh, enjoy the soccer, everybody. And uh, we'll see you next week with another fun-filled episode. God knows from what sport, from what team, what league, whatever. Uh, but it should be, it should be, I hope, uh, fun and enjoyable and uh, a learning experience for one and all. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.